Today's reading from the Bible is in the New Testament, and if you're using one of our uh, Bibles in the back, it's found on page 809. It's Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. On April 3rd, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his final speech. After spending his life battling racial injustice and suffering, he saw something that changed everything, something that so often eludes us all. And when it changed everything, it happened the day before everything would change for him, when his life would be cut short by an act of terrorism. But that night, that legendary night, Dr. King, of all emotions, of all states of being, was happy. You know, our lives, they revolve around happiness, don't they? Whether it be the songs we listen to, the heroes we celebrate, our political agendas, the neighborhoods we choose to move into, our financial investments. I mean, even the foundational documents of the United States promise certain inalienable human rights life, liberty, and of course, the pursuit of happiness. And like everyone else here, I've spent my life in that pursuit with happiness potentially right around the corner for me. I remember even in high school anticipating getting my driver's license, you know, thinking that once I finally had my driver's license, I could go wherever I wanted, do whatever I wanted with whomever I wanted, and then I'd be happy. Of course, I realized I had to then pay for insurance and gas, <laughs> which meant getting a job, and who wanted to do that in high school? So then it became, well, once I get to college, then I'll be happy, which of course, once I got to college, then it was, well, once I get into my dream job, and then that became, well, once I get to the weekend, and then that finally became, well, once I get married, and on and on, and it felt like happiness was always one step ahead of me, no matter how hard I ran, just a little bit further, just a little bit more. And most of us know that it never really pans out, not like we thought it would, anyway. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, most of us are probably tired of the old pursuit of happiness and ready to just be happy. <laughs> Maybe that's why you're here this morning. You braved the snow because you're looking. This is your last-stitch effort to find what you've been looking for. Well, this morning, I want to say that happiness that deep, soul-filling, human-dignifying happiness is possible, and it's possible today. Now, 
To start to find it, though, we need to rediscover what happiness actually means. Most of us, I'm convinced, wouldn't know happiness if it got and sat next to us on the bus. And yet when we do seek to pursue and and resiliently grasp towards happiness, we need to understand that it's not easy, okay? I'm not saying it's complicated. It's actually very simple, but it's not easy or everybody would be happy. And when we come to our passage this morning, we hear some really brilliant ideas from Jesus, but we need to be ready because it's like everything else we've seen from him up to this point. With Jesus flipping everything we thought we knew and our paths towards happiness up on its head. Which is why, if you're new, we're going through the whole account of Matthew's gospel. And we've actually dubbed this one particular section the Upside Down Kingdom. Because if you're anything like me, you know those old ways just don't work anymore. You're ready for something or someone radical who can finally show us the pathway to be happy. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Now, we've been following Jesus' life for a few weeks now, and uh, Jesus has been in this itinerant preaching gig for a little bit, started in Galilee, and his fame is spreading abroad such that people from different countries are leaving homes, they're leaving families, they're leaving jobs to come and hear and see this Jesus who is proclaiming everywhere he goes, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what's even more fascinating is that not only what he says, but what he does, as if heaven itself has broken in wherever he goes, the disenfranchised, the disregarded, the forgotten are welcomed in. They find healing and they're made whole. So in this context of what Jesus has been doing as this itinerant preacher, we come to a moment where Jesus is at the height of his fame, okay? When most people would go and seek to write a book or try to find a time to to get on Oprah to make their debut. Instead, Jesus goes up the side of a mountain and up the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. And he sits down with this eclectic but substantial crowd around him. And what does he see but sheep without a shepherd? Hurting, broken, discouraged, sad pain-filled people. Even though they're separated by millennia, they're not all that different from you and I. And when Jesus sits down to teach, like every rabbi sits down to teach in the first century, but unlike every rabbi in the first century, when he opens his mouth, the text is very explicit. There's this moment of silence. He opens his mouth and a hush comes over the crowd as Jesus begins to teach the greatest sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. Would you look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and help me out here. What's the first word that comes off the lips of Jesus? This isn't rhetorical. What's the first word that comes off the lips of Jesus? Blessed. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Now, this word, this is common in language, especially in Christian circles, and we think we know what it means, but really we have not a clue. The word blessed. The word behind the word blessed, it carries this idea of favor, and interestingly enough, is best understood as happy. Not happiness, that's this trite, fleeting feeling. That reminds us of that old pursuit again. But instead, this is a happiness that's a sustaining characteristic of the good life throughout the circumstances of the ups and downs. This is what we're all craving, and Jesus starts here. In the midst of his sermon, with this ninefold repetition of blessed, 
blessed, blessed, happy, happy, happy. And if you look in your Bibles, just as an aside, you probably see the word beatitudes above our passage. If you're anything like me, you're probably wondering what on earth does that mean and where did it come from? Well, it's the Latin translation of the word blessed and happy, which is what happens when you have scriptures who have been across millennia and people from different languages and cultures have sought to follow the Jesus of scripture. And when we come to this passage, we need to understand that these beatitudes... They're not commands, but statements. And even to be even more clearer, not if-then statements. So often we can fall into the trap that if we just do these right things, then we'll be happy, right? That's not what Jesus is doing here. Instead, as we enter into these beatitudes, we need to understand that Jesus is describing certain kinds of people who are already happy. Who are already happy. Because there are certain kinds of people who are anticipating Jesus and his disruption of the world and its broken systems. There are certain kinds of people who are ready for Jesus to bring his kingdom, his new way of doing things, and turn the world upside down and know that no one is going to be able to stop Jesus as soon as he gets started. There are certain kinds of people who, when they hear, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they hear that as some of the best news in the world and they can't wait for Jesus to actually carry it out. Now, when we walk through these Beatitudes, we could spend months, and I would really like it, you maybe hate me, but we could walk through and spend months describing all the various details of these eight different kinds of people. But instead this morning, we're going to just touch on each of them so that we can get a big picture of what Jesus is describing. And then we're going to circle back around at the end as to what this has to do with our happiness today. So, the first kind of person Jesus calls happy, it highlights just how upside down all of this is, okay? Right there, chapter, fee, uh, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. In other words, happy, the happiest people are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. We use the word poor to communicate insufficiency in all kinds of ways, right? He has a poor sense of direction, you know. She has poor taste. We use this language of poor to communicate insufficiency. And those who are poor in spirit are those who recognize that they don't have the sufficiency within themselves to find happiness. When we look across the Gospels, who are the people that are so regularly around Jesus? Isn't it the materially poor, the social pariahs, the sinners, the outcasts? Why? And why are they called the happy ones? It's because they know that they're at the end of their rope. They know that they aren't the ones who can bring change. They know they need change in their lives, and it's got to come from someone outside of them. And they're just desperate enough to trust Jesus to do it. That's not normally what we think when we come to think about the happiest people in the world, do we? We, we tend to think it's those who are the self-sufficient, the independent, those who can hold all their junk together, right? It's those who can slap a smile on their face or put on a facade. Those, those are the kinds of folks that are really happy. Listen, if you're unwilling to acknowledge your need for help, you will spend your life chasing after the wind. You won't find happiness, and Jesus and his kingdom will sound less like good news and more like a threat to your personal sovereignty to control your own life. 
But if you've hit rock bottom and you know there's no way you can crawl out, when you hear that Jesus' kingdom is coming down, that Jesus is breaking in and he's come and he's the only hope of salvation and that he and he alone can now transform even the lowest of moments to now for us to see that God has been working always for our good, there is where happiness is found. Happiest are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they have the eyes to see it. They see their need. And so they spend their days with the cry on the end of their lips, God, I can't live without you. I can't live without you. Then Jesus goes even further and he ratchets up just how upside down all of this. Matthew 5 verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the mourners. Not just those who weep over their own personal brokenness, but actually weep over the brokenness of the world with all of its injustices, its irritability, its brutalism. And it brings them to tears. They've stood at the graveside of loved ones. They've seen as whole communities have been ostracized or ignored. They know the wounds and pain they have called other, caused to others. And so they mourn. Have any of you seen the movie Inside Out? Anyone here? Yeah? It happens to be one of my new favorites from Pixar. And... They portray the internal world of young Riley by personifying her emotions with these wacky characters, right? And it begins, the movie begins with this battle that we all know too well of sadness versus happiness. And if you haven't caught it yet, this is sadness. Um, Who wants sadness? Nobody wants sadness to touch their memories. Sadness, don't touch her memories. You'll ruin them. Don't get behind and don't get in her brain. Back up sadness. Just stay in this closet over here. But towards the end of the movie, you discover with Riley a a more robust understanding of happiness, of actually the good life, where sadness has a place at the table. Because in those moments of vulnerability where you're honest about brokenness that you see outside and within, it becomes an invitation for genuine comfort, to be known and loved in authentic ways that leads to an even deeper happiness. Okay, and and look, I'm not saying your or my morning is nearly as neat and tidy as young Riley's in Inside Out, okay? And it doesn't, most of the time, end with a holiday, holiday, holiday holiday wood, holiday inn, I guess, Hollywood ending. But instead, what Jesus offers and what he reveals is even more astounding. Blessed, happy are the mourners. Why? For they shall be comforted. How? What about the fatherless? What about the childless? What about the depressed, the forgotten, and the alone? Jesus is looking out at this eclectic group that surrounds him, and he sees those who are mourning over brokenness in their life and the brokenness in the world as the Roman oppression continues to squeeze the very life out of the people of Israel. And when the rest of the world just shouts, well, get over it and pull yourself up, let's get going. Instead, what we find in Jesus' kingdom is the promise of a father who will one day wipe every tear from our eyes. But it's not just a future hope because we've been given also the Holy Spirit who's also been called what? The comforter. And one of the greatest ways in which he comforts us is to remind us that we aren't alone. 
that even the darkest of moments, God is with us. That even in those moments of darkness, darkness will not have the last word. For there is a day coming where God's kingdom will come in full force and even every tear will be turned to laughter, every sadness to joy, and every bit of wrong made right. Happiest are the mourners. Then there's the meek. Blessed, happy are the meek. These are the ones who don't force themselves into Facebook conversations. <laughs> you know, these are the ones who often relinquish their rights. They're the gentle, which we often interpret as the weak, right? Who wants to hang out with them? Because who doesn't want to celebrate those who get things done, who make their voice heard no matter who gets in their way? But what does Jesus say? Blessed, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who? The meek? The meek are the ones who inherit the earth? I mean, interestingly enough, a better translation of this passage goes something like, for they shall inherit the land, which for every Jewish person, they're listening to Jesus' teaching would have instantly heard the promised land, the land of rest, where God was to give his people rest in a land. We tend to think that the forceful and the forthright take the land, right? As Nietzsche says, all of life is about the will to power not according to Jesus. Instead, Jesus says the meek, they understand that you have to inherit the land. You can't take it. You have to inherit it. You see, the meek, in a world of take, take, take and survival of the fittest, the meek know that God the Father has to bring his kingdom and then he will so give it to his children. They will inherit what God himself can only do and he will not be stopped and he will do something better than we could ever do by force. And this type of understanding, it doesn't make them cowards or weak. Instead, the meek become almost unnoticeably resilient because they're not pursuing the limelight. And in the end, they know God will get his victory and God will get his way. He will build his kingdom. Happiest are the meek. Next, we see the people who hunger and thirst are happy. But the key resides in what they're hungering and thirsting for. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, not self-righteousness. Not pleasure, not comfort, not acclaim, not status, but rightness. And that word is a very robust word. It has individual capacity as well as communal implications. Rightness and that you now live your life in accordance with God's good design individually as well as seek to structure the systems of communities so that the image of God that every human being now has is respected and justice is cultivated in God's good world. This is the way it ought to be. Rightness. Righteousness. Sometimes we say righteousness and then we just push it off because we don't want to think about it. But it basically means rightness. And this ever forward movement, this zeal towards rightness in every sphere in which God has placed us is like your food and your drink. If you don't get it, you're going to starve. And when you get a taste for it, it just whets your appetite. And you're always wanting more and more. And ironically, Jesus then says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How? Because that's what Jesus has come to do. 
first to make rightness possible between man and God through his sufficient death on the cross, but also simultaneously in the invitation of his kingdom come to now execute that rightness across the whole landscape of the earth as it is in heaven. What are you hungering for? What are you thirsting for? Happiest are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, the fifth kind of person we find here are blessed or happy are the merciful. The merciful. Once again, this is not an if-then statement. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is an if-then such that if you give mercy, then you're guaranteed God's mercy as a way of manipulating God. In other words, it's actually saying that they have such a poverty of spirit that they know they have to have God's mercy. And it so transforms how they interact with others such that they give mercy. And so simultaneously, they, they show this such widescaping compassion in both word and deed that they pursue those who have made mistakes in life, who have actually brought upon poverty in their own lives or maybe poverty in the lives of others. Mercy in the social sector isn't just towards the poor, but it's actually towards the rich. And so there's this swearing off of brutality and judgmental attitudes and harsh rhetoric. Because even though they're not the guilty party, maybe in this one sense, they know in God's perfect standard, no one is innocent. Blessed, happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Next, blessed, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. People who are pure in heart is a way of saying they are single-mindedly devoted toward one thing. They're not going after this pleasure and then this pleasure and this pleasure. They don't have a gabe for work, a gabe for, work, uh, for home, a gabe for play. It is this tomeness, this wholeness, this integrated life. And I don't want you to also think when you hear pure of heart, I don't want you to see that as people who just keep the rules either. Because it's not about just keeping the rules, because we can always justify breaking a rule here and there. The conditions were perfect. And we can also even fulfill the surface of those rules and look pure, but inside we're rotting away. God has always wanted our heart, where our lives and our loves are in perfect alignment, exclusively committed to Jesus and his kingdom. The pure of heart. They're happy for they shall see God. What does that mean? That's a pretty robust statement, isn't it? Well, in one sense, there is the future promise that those who are single-mindedly devoted to Jesus and his kingdom, that when it comes, they will be excited and they will finally see what they have hoped for come to pass. But there's also a present-day hope. That through the eyes of faith and their single-minded devotion, it will cause sacrifice. It will lead them to desperate situations where all they will have left is to hope that God will show up and they will see him work. Blessed, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God and they'll know the joy of a fully integrated life rather than the sham of deception. Happy are the pure of heart. Next, blessed, happy are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. Happy are the peacemakers, not the polarizing, 
Not the hyper-opinionated that turn every conversation into a conversion point about their political point of view, right? I hate being Facebook friends with those moments. Okay, and Jesus isn't even talking about the peacekeepers or the pacifists, those who just avoid conflict to keep the peace. Instead, it's those who step into the line of fire not to pick up a gun and not going to the far left or to the far right, but instead going into the middle to make peace. You see, when Jesus is talking, he sees the zealots who are also out in the crowd. Those who think that the kingdom of heaven will only come by bloodshed. The glory of God must be righteously redeemed through righteous anger and the picking up of the sword. But Jesus says the son of God comes to bring his kingdom in a very different way. And if you long to be called the sons of God, you must, yes, be courageous because it's not easy to step into the line of fire. But it also requires humility and patience to bring peace rather than war. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And lastly, and maybe the most upside down, if I were to think about it, of all the beatitudes, of all the happy people, happy are the persecuted, the tortured, the marginalized, the forgotten, the powerless. What on earth is Jesus talking about here? Look with me at chapter 5 and verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, there's our word again, sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we can't stop there. You see, Jesus knows that can be interpreted so many different ways. And so he goes even further to make explicit as to what he means. Blessed are you, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If that sentence ended three words earlier, it would have changed and brought a whole different meaning to what we're talking about here. Jesus is bringing himself into the limelight here as the focus of the Beatitudes. Rejoice and be glad for you. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So why are the persecuted happy? Not because they're masochists, okay? But because in their single-minded devotion to Jesus, they'll follow him to the cross and back. They'll pursue righteousness wherever he leads them even if it means suffering. Now, to be clear, there are a lot of Christians who then read this as a, a great excuse that, oh, Christians can be awful people. <laughs> well, see, they, you know, I'm getting persecuted. No, you're getting persecuted because you're a jerk, all right? So this isn't what it's talking about, where we have the right now to talk to anybody any old way we want. Instead, we're persecuted on Jesus' account by living as Jesus has called us to live and then calling upon ourselves, actually the persecution which he himself received. Jesus spends more time here on suffering, interestingly enough, than any of the other Beatitudes. The square footage just in the words is astronomically more than any of the others because following Jesus has never been easy. And just in the first century, just as much as today, the biggest allure and the promise of happiness is the comfortable life. The yes man or the yes woman are the happy men and women. Those who choose the easy life, the just go with the flow kind of life, will have the full life when nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus understands that for those who are willing to go through an extension of hell on earth, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Happy are those who are persecuted. You know, happiness, there are so many different definitions out there and so many people who are making promises on how you can land at its doorstep. But I know my own heart. I know some of our stories in this room. I know the cultural tide that we often are swimming in. And so I want to plead with each and every one of us this morning, will you let the author of life redefine the happy life? Will you let the author of life redefine the happy life? You see, Jesus is the most brilliant man who ever lived because he is not just a mere mortal. Being very God of very God, he knows you better than you know yourself. Even in our endless cycle and desire after authenticity, Jesus will always know the more authentic you than you know. And as he calls us, to trust him even in the upside down. He calls us as the creator and the sustainer of humankind and happiness itself. Now to be clear, as I said earlier, this happiness isn't just following a list of commands. Oftentimes those who pursue Jesus find themselves obeying those commands because they begin to trust Jesus. But it's not just about the surface of obeying commands, and it's actually not about rigging the system and just figuring out the if this, then that scenarios with happiness as the result. It's much more real than that, much more personal. It's not easy, but it's very simple. And you see, there's a thread that goes through every one of these beatitudes. And if there's one thing that you walk away with this morning, one thing that you can take And it's at the core of understanding what happiness is. Remember this, happiness is found in knowing and being known by the man of sorrows. Happiness is knowing, it's found in knowing and being known by the man of sorrows. You see, when we look at the Beatitudes, we so easily look at eight different examples of happy people. And there's something to that, but it's not the primary purpose Jesus, first and foremost, is talking about the happiest person in the kingdom. That's him. Jesus is the most blessed upon blessed. He is the one who perfectly fits in line with the coming kingdom and will have the greatest joy when it's brought to the fore. One who was born into poverty as an outcast and lived his life in insufficiency that he might bring the sufficient kingdom for all. One who mourned over Jerusalem and wept over the brokenness of the world that he might one day comfort her. One who in the hunger and thirst for righteousness flipped the tables in the temple in Jerusalem and who is simultaneously the rightful heir of the promised land exudes meekness such that he forgoes his rights to be whipped, mutilated, and murdered on a cross. One who is the very image of the invisible God within whom there is not one spot or wrinkle in the purity of his heart. And as he hangs on the cross, being mocked by the very ones who proclaimed, crucify him, he offers forgiveness and mercy. He exemplifies courage because he doesn't stand idly by, but he steps into the middle to make peace by the shed blood of his cross. And then he's persecuted for his own namesake that he might bring rightness to the world. And this man of sorrows, the one who has borne our grief, in him and him alone are the deepest riches of happiness. This word become flesh. We come to know and love 
by knowing the Jesus of the word? Do you see him in the Beatitudes? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an early 20th century pastor and theologian who was executed in a Nazi prison camp, who knew very well that suffering was a part of the calling as a follower of Jesus, writes in his book, Cost of Discipleship, having reached the end of the Beatitudes, we naturally ask if there's any place on this earth for the community which they describe. Clearly there is one place, and only one, and that's where the poorest, meekest, and most sorely tried of men is to be found, on the cross at Golgotha, the hill upon which Jesus was crucified. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. With him, it has lost all. And with him, it has found all. Happiness is found in knowing and being known by the man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It is there where those who lose their life will find it, where the first become last and the last become first, this upside-down kingdom. And what's so simple about this whole thing and the way that Jesus now calls us to happiness is that you don't have to somehow figure out how to be rich in order to be happy. You don't have to put on a facade or a smile in order to be happy. You don't have to be attractive, decisive, strong, or even popular. The door has been flung wide open. for everyone who's willing to embrace the man of sorrows. Regardless of your socioeconomic status, your race, your culture, where you've been, what you've done, who you are. But to be sure, it is only through one door that this happiness is made possible. You see, we can't just pursue meekness for meekness sake or we'll miss what Jesus is talking about. We can't pursue peace and so avoid conflict for our own namesake and our own pleasure or we'll find ourselves left empty. If you just chase happiness, elusive happiness, you will leave with your hands empty. But if you chase Jesus, he'll throw in happiness and give you enough to share. Where are you looking for happiness? Where are you looking for happiness? Will you let the author of life redefine the happy life? You see, happiness is found in knowing and being known by the man of sorrows. And so as we return to Dr. King's words that began our time this morning, a pastor, a theologian, an activist who pursued peace and reconciliation but did so with great courage, one who was willing to give mercy but also pursued rightness as his food and drink, May his words be our anthem as we seek to follow Jesus as blessed and happy people. And so I'm happy today. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word where we see the true Christ, not a Christ in our making, but the man of history, corroborated by multiple witnesses who walked and talked and talked with people who walked and talked with you. God, thank you for the grace that comes through the gospel, that first and foremost in Jesus, we find someone who has perfectly fulfilled 
our righteousness and now freely gives a happiness that is more complex than any of the definitions our world seeks to provide, such that we can mourn and yet still know happiness, that we can pursue peace and actually exude meekness and know happiness, that we can even be persecuted and go through great pain and turmoil and still know happiness. This is what you offer. Not neat and tidy, potentious and yet beautiful. God, give us the eyes to see. Give us the hearts that long. May we rest at the feet of the man of sorrows. May we know you, Jesus. And may we put down our barriers that you may too know us. We pray this in his name. Amen.